Hi and welcome to this podcast and in this podcast this is a repeat or a recording of a keynote speech that I gave to the workshop held by the Institute for Family Business Research Foundation in the UK and Lancaster University Management School. The point behind this podcast really is to recount the ideas and insights that I shared regarding how family business leaders can think about moving from resilience to resurgence and practical strategies that they can use. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. I want to thank the IFP Research Foundation and Lancaster University and specifically Martin Kemp and Giovanna Campopiano for inviting me to hold this talk. And this talk is going to be focused on the concept of from resilience to resurgence and providing hopefully some insights for family business leaders. And the origin of this really is that it builds on a podcast series that I decided to begin during the course of the pandemic. And the really interesting thing there is that I have the opportunity to speak with business leaders, to speak with entrepreneurs, to speak with family business researchers. And really this talk is an amalgamation of of some of the insights and learnings that I've drawn from that. So as a brief bio myself, so I'm Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Loughborough University School of Business and Economics. Before that, I was a reader in entrepreneurial management in Durham, and before that, Associate Professor and Assistant Professor at Nottingham University Business School, where I began my career. I'm also the founding director of the Center for Corporate Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And despite the name, what we're really interested in is entrepreneurship and innovation across the entire life cycle of an organization and more crucially regardless of the type of organization and we have a keen interest in family businesses not least myself because i come from a family business background Um, my grandparents my parents were entrepreneurs and and also ran uh, family businesses I'm also a visiting professor in Shanghai. I'm editor of Entrepreneurship Research Journal and also associate editor of the Journal of Family Business Strategy. And my interest really, and I think you'll see this during this session, is about building, managing, and sustaining an innovative organization. And again, regardless of context. And I think now more than ever in this pandemic, these are really crucial questions because we have to be able to capitalize on entrepreneurship and innovation across the business and across our people if we're now going to not just survive this but come out of it in a way where we can thrive. Um, With that in mind I'll just also highlight the fact that I am a co-author of a report that was commissioned and funded by the IFB Research Foundation a few years back on family business entrepreneurship with uh, myself, Mike Wright, uh, Louise Scholes, Alfredo Damasis, and Josip Kotler. So the agenda for today then is we're going to first of all just look at this idea of resilience because I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that resilience is is somehow a state that you, you arrive at. In reality, it's not. It's a property that the organization achieves. So we need to think about what's underpinning that resilience and what are some of the consequences of that resilience. Then 
and this is really the core of what I've been discussing in my podcast series and, and the various people I've been interviewing is in my mind, resilience is not enough. You know, you can be hard shelled, you can be resilient, you can survive. But what about resurgence? How do we come out of this pandemic, out of this crisis in a way that allows us to grow, a way that allows us to be sustainable, to be profitable? So how do we thrive? And that's going to be the second part of this talk. And then finally, you know, what do we need to do? What do we need to have to thrive and not just survive? And what I will close on is this concept of improvisation and um, improvisation readiness assessments where you can evaluate your organizations to evaluate how ready your organization is to improvise. And of course, that's crucial to this uh, common word we come across these days, which is this concept of uh, agility. I've also published several practitioner articles now on familybusiness.org. And this is a great resource, really fantastic resource for family businesses, for family business leaders and their advisors to get insights on not just good practice and good initiatives, but also lots of lessons from a COVID uh, point of view. So yeah, that is a free resource for you. And I would strongly, strongly recommend you at least have a look at familybusiness.org. Okay, so a quick note about COVID-19 as a crisis. So we commonly hear this phrase, the new normal. And the world that we're living in now is, is some kind of new normal. Um, it's actually not new. Uh, the new normal has been in place now since about 2010. And it was a term that was first coined by Mohammed El Arain in his well-known Per Jacobson lecture entitled Navigating the New Normal. So the truth is we've been confronting this new normal now for 10, 11 years. So we have to start asking ourselves, what, what is this new normal? What's new? What does it mean? And the truth of the matter is that uncertainty and crisis events have been escalating quite rapidly now for the past 10 years. We can think of floods, natural disasters such as fires and earthquakes, the fall of globalization, the rise of uh, Trumpian economics, populism, world leaders changing, pandemics and new strains. So we have SARS, bird flu, COVID, new strains of COVID and the financial and economic crisis and actually the social crises that come along with these kind of things. And that's one viewpoint. But then on the other side of the coin, we have things such as the climate crisis and constantly evolving technology. So the reality is that as businesses, as, as family business leaders, as entrepreneurs, we've been facing uncertainty now for quite a long time. And this concept of new normal hinges fundamentally on this idea of uncertainty. I think what is perhaps different now compared to when uh, Mohammed El Arain first wrote of this concept of new normal is that we face the rise of catastrophic events that have bled from the socio-political to the economic and financial and vice versa. So we're seeing more and more that say economic or financial crises have distinct socio-political effects. And so, you know, what used to be separate and distinct is now very much bleeding into each other. So then uncertainty is everywhere now. This is 
the the point that I'm get that I'm getting at. You know, we we are bombarded with breaking news. Um, as a business, we're constantly facing uncertainty. We're facing choices in the actions that we have to do. So, what does this mean from a resilience point of view? Well, I would argue that resilience invariably involves making judgments under uncertainty. So, with this in mind, we need to understand what resilience entails because it may carry risks for what constitutes good judgment. So, for instance, you can be resilient by being hard-shelled, by being able to stick the course. But sticking the course risks adhering to what has worked for us in the past, but may not actually work for us going forward. So we have to think about, so you know, what is making our business long-standing? Does that tradition, does that heritage provide us with resilience now, but is it actually going to help us become better, become stronger, to change in the face of this uncertainty. So there is a question mark here over this concept of, of good judgment. Okay, so what does it mean to be resilient? Uh, like I said before, it's really a property. It's not a state. And, and because it's a property, that means it's fluid. It's not something that an organization you know, achieves once and is therefore forever resilient. That's not the case. Because it's a property, it's subject to both being built and being eroded. I also want to highlight the point that to be resilient is not, is not to be inert. You know, inertia in, in physics does not mean that an object stays still. Uh, inertia actually means that an object is moving along a path but it never wavers from that path. So inertia, the only way you can change inertia is if you put a force onto that object to make it either change direction. So to be resilient doesn't mean to be inert, to be able to stay the course, to be strong and be true. In fact, it requires a degree of change. It requires a degree of adaptability. Inertia would mean that you have the inability to change. And in that respect, I don't think that's a good quality of being resilient. So you can develop a hard shell, but it, you should think of it as a buffer, not about being unchanging. So I guess the best way to describe it is some kind of ability to endure shock and stress, but also to recover and to grow again. And I highlight this because We've seen this in successive crises, and unfortunately, we never seem to learn from history. So, for instance, in the financial crisis, what we saw was short-term reactions, such as firing, cutting workforces, and so on and so forth. We naturally see that again in this pandemic. The only difference is the concept of uh, you know, furloughing, for example. So that means you might be able to furlough some of your workforce and retain that skill for future usage. But either way, you're mothballing skills if, if you are putting people on, on furlough. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is that you are taking a cost-driven approach to your business and not a capability-driven approach to your business. So by shedding certain parts of the business or certain human capital, or making certain decisions, you may inadvertently affect some of the capabilities that either underlie your business now, 
or worse still, where it may need to go in the future. So again, you'll come across concepts like pivoting. And in this case, yes, you can cut costs and I'm not in any way suggesting that you shouldn't because obviously one part of being resilient is to clearly to shore up your finances. Family firms have an advantage in that respect because they can tap into family financial resources. They have patient capital. They tend to build up financial reserves because of their dislike to rely on debt. And so in this case, it puts them in a pretty good position to be able to access financial resources or leverage ones that they have already built up in patient capital. But that does not absolve the need of having to think about creating new products and services so long as you have the capabilities to do this. So maybe we can think about this in practice and I can give you some examples here just to illustrate perhaps the difference between resilience and inertia and the difference between thinking about what strategies you can make and what you can go on to make. So one example is watchfinder.com or watchfinder and company. It's not a family business as far as I know, but I wanted to draw attention to you because I've noticed something very interesting. Watchfinder has grown dramatically in recent years, but very interestingly, during the pandemic, it has sold a considerable amount of premium used watches, which is what Watchfinder does. You know, it specializes in premium pre-owned used watches. Its stock comes from somebody that wants to sell the watch to them and they ultimately then sell that on to a customer. What's really interesting is I've just been out of sheer curiosity monitoring uh, Watchfinder's stock levels and consistently through the entire of 2020, their stock holding of these watches was continuously going down, meaning they were making considerable sales. So this is interesting because it's suggesting that this premium end watch segment is itself resilient. In other words, there are resilience within the customers that are buying these products. And that should make you think about resilience is not just a structural internal property, but there can be resilience in your markets. So you, you should think about that. Joissa, as an example, is a third generation Swiss family business making watches. But unlike boutique brands, which are often following niche differentiation strategies with really high price points, Joissa actually has a quite a low to medium price points in, in the two to 300 to 400 euro price bracket. It's been able to leverage this trend behind watches, but also compete uh, more effectively on price. PBA, this has been the subject of a series of Financial Times articles. It's an Italian architectural business, family business, that not only was hit by the pandemic and globalization, but also was hit in the first instance when the pandemic struck China because it restricted their access to Chinese steel. Antinori is uh, the famous Italian wine business and it's been interesting because they've been going for centuries and in and around the 26th generation now. And in the late 14th century, in the event of a pandemic, they diversified into wine. 
Williams, I'm a big Formula One fan, so I had to put Williams here. Williams, of course, famously sold and, and exited, or the Williams family sold and exited out of, the, of that F1 business uh, because of the pandemic. And I think this was a good course of action to bring in necessary financial resources and management resources that, that perhaps they just didn't have. And then finally, I wanted to put ASOS as an example here. ASOS is not a family business, but I wanted to draw attention to companies like Amazon and ASOS who have done far better at dealing with a shift to online retail and online um, clothes buying, for instance, which is where, where they have um, their skill. And how this compares to traditional retailers, which have really fallen flat in creating a meaningful online presence and in backing that up with logistics. The, the key really for online retail now is not simply the website and your pricing strategy, it's your logistics strategy. And that includes reverse logistics. How do you get items back in the event of a return? So ASOS, I wanted to put that as a good example that might be of interest to, uh, to some family businesses as a potential you know, company to, to learn from. So what are the challenges to the to resilience in the family business? This comes from my discussion and my podcast with Alfredo Damasis. And there's really four areas. One is management readiness. And not just management readiness, but managerial replaceability. The sad truth is that for family businesses, they will have lost loved ones. They will have lost members of staff, members of family. And there are issues here around succession, around divorce, because divorce rates are increasing. There are questions around heirs to the throne, so to speak, and who is going to take over the business and whether or not that's been prepared. Succession is not something that can be just picked up um, in a very short space of time. It requires planning. This also ties in to the idea of long-term orientation versus short-term ad adaptation. You know, short-term adaptations and improvising and being agile and pivoting and, and all these kind of words, they have one implication. What are you trying to achieve? So the important thing is to consider, use your goals as your compass, use your history and legacy to an extent, but use your goals as a compass. And this can mean, perhaps in the, in the immediate term, reconsidering your emphasis on social emotional wealth to, to solidify the financial wealth of the business. So there is a balancing act there between the goals of the business as from a family perspective and shoring up liquidity, which we also have here. And finally, what I want to emphasize, because it's a special interest to me, is the concept of family social capital. Can you leverage financial, uh, sorry, family relationships inside the business, but also outside the business? With family social capital, we often think of the family relationships inside the business. But if you go beyond the nuclear family, we can think about our cousins, our distant family, our other relatives that might be working in other businesses. Can we leverage these ties to help support the family business? And there is an important aspect here because with remote work, there is the danger of dehumanizing some of these relationships while we turn to digital work. And so that has an implication which, as 
scholars and, and as, as managers and leaders, we don't yet fully understand. So some of the lessons that we've encountered in the podcast series about resilience capacity and how we might achieve it. In the first instance, think about your ability to persist in the face of change. So that's what the resilience capacity is, is being able to withstand major change. So you have to have a steadfast acceptance of reality, but you also have, a, have to have a deep belief based on strong values that life is meaningful and the history and life of the family, that family history, that family heritage is something that you should draw on to help build your res resilience. But please don't let this bind you to unproductive courses of action. You, know, you do have to think about the ability to improvise, the ability to change and to make changes. I'm going to refer to this later, but I would say that a tr the truth here is that any change is better than no change in this situation because I don't think it's productive for resilience if we are simply trying to hold, hold on to the past, so to speak. So use family history and heritage wisely to give you strength, to give you that compass, to give you the belief that you can, steadfast belief that you can build out of this, but don't let that bind you into just repeating things. So I would say what we're, what we're talking about here really is fortification through soft factors. So we can use our history and legacy, our heritage and legacy to build stoicism, to help form survival instincts. And those things matter because they affect the culture of the family business and its people. It will give family, people, family members and non-family members a story to hold on to, a set of values to hold on to and to be able to leverage as part of making emotional investments in growing the business. So I think that these, this process that I have here actually also translates into a set of characteristics. Our history and legacy allow us to react. Our stoicism gives us ideas of how to absorb and the culture of our firm will let us assimilate the things and enable change. And I think you know, these, this is why we, it's so important to reflect on history legacy and see what kind of resilience characteristics they embed in our family business. So those are the soft factors, but what about hard factors? And I would say here, you have to do three things. One is embrace uncertainty. The second is collaborate successfully. And the third is innovation and creating a momentum for change. Again, I cannot emphasize enough that resilience is not inertia. It requires a element of change. So evaluate your readiness for change. Act on that diagnosis. Think about, do you have malleable structures? Can you change work processes? Can you change routines? Can you leverage you know, this shift to digital work and take timely action, no matter the uncertainty. Then we should think about collaboration. You have to leverage existing relationships and communicate your actions into your supply chain. Give your suppliers confidence to do business with you and to continue to do business with you. What you absolutely cannot do 
is abuse your suppliers and partners. And when I read about businesses that are going to their suppliers and saying, we want a 20% cost cut from you, they're suffering as well. And they're having to make difficult decisions. So you have to work with them. You can't just pass on the solution to your problem to become a problem to your suppliers. And you simply cannot leverage ties if they bear no trust. You know, bear in mind that yesterday's moves will haunt you now. A company that has mistreated its suppliers in the past can expect no favors at this time. And a good example I want to draw your attention to is Plaza Premium Group, the world's largest independent airport hospitality service provider. And at the outset of the COVID-19 crisis, and they're based in Hong Kong, by the way, Plaza Premium Group commissioned its own report on the importance of good relationships and especially with stakeholders. And its intention really was to give confidence to suppliers, give confidence to its stakeholders and partners that they were a good business to keep doing business with. And then they could, they realized that this was a joint enterprise, that they weren't going to just, you know, dump the problem on their suppliers. And then of course, the other, the other aspect of this is innovation and creating a momentum for change. And again, that is about building into the resilience internally, but it's also about driving and encouraging change. And I would suggest you think about products, services, but also your business models to think about how you're making revenue now and how that might need to change going forward. Let me briefly say that there is a potential dark side to resilience. You've seen me now emphasize several times that resilience could potentially de devolve into a situation where the company actually doesn't change. That the idea of to be resilient means to stay the course. It doesn't. You really should never forget the nuclear option, as I sometimes put it, which is to consider exit. Sometimes this may mean exiting a market completely. It may mean exiting the business. And I put Williams, the Williams family and their exit from, from the longstanding F1 business as an example of that. That was no doubt a hugely difficult decision, but sometimes it might be better to exit than face a bleak future. Because if you think of, invest, of exit as investment realization, or as an opportunity to rethink and reposition, then what it means to exit for a family is actually very different because it could mean that you exit what you're doing now, your markets or product areas, and move into new product service areas. It may even, thinking of exit may even help you actually to consolidate your business, but to diversify. And you know, we can think about Italian and French fashion houses and how they moved into medical markets and supplying you know ppe equipment and, and and so on and so forth so you know the past is no guarantee of the future and you do need to serve your customers exceptionally well so please don't forget the exit option it may be better financially for your business for your business and your family it may allow you to think about transforming into a trust and to become an investment vehicle or what have you the only thing i want to do is just remind you that you should not forget this option. Exiting, of course, can also have a positive. It could also mean entering a new market or launching new products. So, you know, leverage curiosity and creativity inside your business and 
by that I really do mean go beyond your family members. Look at all the creative people inside your business. Leverage those skills. Test your ideas that are freely available to tools and resources online, but get yourself in front of the, of the customer. Everyone that I've spoken to that, that has in my podcast for giving advice for startup entrepreneurs, the advice is consistent, but equally consistent to existing business. Get in front of the customer, find out what they want and don't want. Because even in these chaotic times, there are opportunities to better serve customers. They're still there, but they want a better service. And consider the governance of your business. This is something that we've researched and published on recently. And what we found crucial for innovation strategy is next generation members. Leverage the next generation members of your family. They really, really can help at this crucial time to help support your innovation strategy. Quick point, being agile does not mean you have to do everything yourself. You know, I'm, I've been at pains to emphasize this concept of social capital and this concept of relationships. You know, just think about family-owned restaurants. I know it's a simple example, but think about how family-owned restaurants have been able to leverage a takeout model, um, a delivery model by, by working with delivery startups, you know, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, or the so-called gig economy. So the lesson there is to leverage the capabilities of others. Think again how you know, Italian and French fashion houses were able to channel their technology and expertise into different product areas. So this is really indicating that we should think about diversification. Also exiting you know, or entering a new market, try to act small and then rapidly scale. You know, if you act small, it just means that you are de-risking what you're up to. You're not overstretching the resources. You're not delving into extensive costs. But what I would say is when you are ready to go, you, got, got to, you really got to go hard. And especially now you need a solid social media campaign and a bank of social media content most of the time. And even if this is, even if you're a B2B business, you've got to think about how do you generate momentum behind your business to your suppliers and buyers. Look for potentially what trends are irreversible. There's a great deal of talk now about you know, whether this remote working aspect is, is going to become irreversible, for instance. And of course, final point, I'm sure this is, this is clear to everybody, but you know, do not overpromise and then under deliver because right now customers have intensely heightened sensitivity. And I think the airline industry and the, ho the holiday booking industry suffered this in the first lockdown where they took forever to refund customers. And I can understand because of financial pressures, but you've really got to be careful because they are heightenedly sensitive right now. Um, quick notes about decision-making. In 2019, I created a decision-making game, a decision-making toolkit that we prototyped out of Lego and we ran a series of workshops to, with entrepreneurs. <laughs> And what was super interesting here is that we were challenging entrepreneurs to think about what are they really trying to achieve? If they're, if they're trying to become resilient, what's the true end game? What's your true outcome? And if you're trying to be resilient or you're trying to change, what do you need to do? What, what pre-decisions do you need to take? But look at how was your internal organization geared to either support or were still restrict your ability to change? 
and look at what's going on in the external environment. And of course, never forget breaking news, you know, this potential for uncertainty and bad news or change happening frequently. Now, you've heard me say the word improvisation a few times now, and I've put a link here to a free diagnostic tool. Um, quick heads up, the, this is a diagnostic tool, an improvisation readiness tool called IRIS that was created by Paul Hughes, Ian Hodgkinson, Rob Morgan, and a few other colleagues. And the paper, I believe, is freely available. There is a diagnostic tool in there where you can score yourself along these characteristics to understand how ready your business is to actually improvise. And again, if you can't improvise, you can't be agile. You can't adapt. You can't move quickly when the circumstances require it. So I strongly recommend you have a look at that free resource. And it might give you some really interesting insights, actually, into you know, what do you desire? Where is your business actually at? And how... It, you know, what in your business is actually going to enable you to be fast moving and to improvise and to be agile and what might be restricting. So as some conclusions then um, that I'd just like to close on, timely action beats random action and any action beats no action. I, I just don't feel, and I'm sure I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here, that staying still is not really an option, a viable option right now. And it's not what we mean by being resilient. It's certainly not going to drive resurgence. Relationships are clearly especially important. And this can also mean the unique family social capital, the unique family relationships that family business can leverage. But don't just rely on the family. Look at your suppliers. Look at other relationships you have or can build because otherwise you're at risk of a family orientation lock and in that scenario all the information and actions that you take are driven by one perspective only and I think it's vital now to broaden that horizon. On a practical sense develop a to-do list you know, that helps you embrace change and not simply put out fires. I think that's quite important. You, know, you can be fixing what's going on now but you need to think about the future. And, you know, to end on the positive here, any crisis will bring opportunities. I know it's tempting to think of crises purely in terms of threats, but it's good to put an entrepreneurial hat on and to think, okay, what opportunities are there here? Can we diversify? Can we move what we've always done into new markets? Can we better serve customers? Can we take share from other companies? Can we identify markets or segments that are actually resilient in and of themselves? And Remember earlier, I gave you the example of WatchFinder exactly for that purpose. Okay, well, thank you very much. I know I only had a short bit of time to, to talk. I hope that was really interesting and, um, and gave you some food for thought. So thank you very much.